Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. Welcome to the Paracast, where we start off the show with Lloyd Pye. He's going to tell us about Star Child. So Lloyd Pye, what is it and where was it found? The Star Child skull is a real, true bone skull. There's no question about it. It's not a fake. It's not a. It's not cobbled together like the Piltdown Man or any of that. And, and no one questions that it's genuine. It was found in Mexico, in southwest Mexico, in a high desert area about just south of the Copper Canyon area, about a hundred miles southwest of Chihuahua, rugged like Arizona or New Mexico type area. Uh, it was found in about 1930 by a teenage girl of Mexican heritage whose family had taken her back to the old home village and she had not been there before and she was 14, 15 years old and they told her not to go wander in any of the mines, mine tunnels, the abandoned mine tunnels or the caves in the area because they were unstable and bad things could happen. So, you know, tell a teenager what not to do. She wandered off and uh, began to look around and explore and some distance from the village she found uh, a mine tunnel and went in, and she found lying on its back a human skeleton well up into the mine tunnel, but still where she could see. And as she got closer, she saw that beside it there was a mound of dirt, and coming out of that mound was what she called a misshapen hand. And that hand was wrapped around the upper arm bone of the skeleton lying uh, on its back on the dirt, making it clear that the one in the ground had died. There was a skeleton in the ground that had died and been buried, and whoever this was had laid down beside it to die. So it was a very kind of dramatic scene. Because it was in a mine tunnel and there was no compaction of soil, no rain, no water dripping, no nothing, it was as loose as the day it was dug. So with her bare hands, she dug the dirt away and she exposed another whole skeleton. She said that it was smaller than the one lying on its back and was misshapen. All we have is that the body was misshapen, the hands were misshapen, and the head was misshapen. So she tried to uh, recover both full skeletons, was not able to do that. Long story recounted in other places, but she gets two the two skulls of these two skeletons she manages to sneak them back into the states and they're damaged by that point but she doesn't really know what they are she just considers them a souvenir she shellacks them she puts them in a cardboard box and she keeps them for the rest of her life which was into the early 90s hmm. At what point did you come into possession of the skull? When she found out that she was going to die for both skulls, she wanted to find you know, a home farm like you would for a pet if you knew you were going to die. And she asked uh, a couple that she knew if they would mind keeping them. And so they said, no, they would, they would take them. So they just transferred the, the box, the cardboard box with the two skulls from her garage to their garage for where they sat for another five years. Mm-hmm. But they were not really comfortable having a couple of skulls in their garage. And so they met another couple, one of which, this was in El Paso, Texas, and there was a a younger couple named uh, Ray and Melanie Young, ironically, and Melanie of the pair, Melanie had been a neonatal nurse for a long time, and she had dealt with a lot of deformity in children, and so the couple that had the skulls assumed that she wouldn't be put off by how weird the one skull looked, which they had always assumed, and the woman had always assumed, the woman who found it, that it was a deformity of some kind. 
so um, Melanie said, sure, not a problem. We'll take it. So when they saw it for the first time and Melanie held it in her hands, knowing what she knew, she said, this is not a normal deformity of any kind because it was too light. It was just way too light. But if you're a deformity, you're still a human. You st your bone still weighs what human bone weighs, and your bone is still as thick as human bone is. And this bone was clearly, it weighed half as much, and it was half as thick. So there was something very unusual about it in terms of just its physiology. But more importantly, both Ray and Melanie were members of the local MUFON chapter. So they were very, very aware of, of uh, UFO matters. And when they looked at that skull, they said, Melanie said, you know, that, that would fit perfectly in the head of a gray, uh, of a gray alien. She said, we need to find out what this thing is. And so that's when they contacted me because of my, my other work in uh, human origins and hominoids and things like that. They had heard that I focused on skulls in my work, and I did. So they brought me in, and they showed it to me, and they said, uh, what do you think? And I said, I've, I've never seen anything like it. I think it's probably very special. And they said, would you take it out and, and get it tested and find out, you know, for sure what it is? And I said, sure, I'd be happy to do that. should take about six months. Uh, once scientists, of course, find out how dramatic this thing is and how important it could be, I'm sure they'll line up knocking on the door to try to be a part of it. So you and I are now talking eight years later, which mm -hmm. which tells you how, how badly I miscalculated the difficulty of the task. But nonetheless, that's it. So I began at that point the, the series of tests that have continued on now for eight years. Lloyd, tell our audiences a little bit about your background in anthropology because they came to you because you said that you had some experience in this field. What exactly is your experience? We're curious. I don't have a, a formal degree or anything. Like most people in our field, I'm, I'm just self-taught. I'm certainly not ignorant, but you, you can't go to college and get teaching and training in the kind of research that I like to do, which is the hidden under the, you know, under the cover sort of stuff. But I had spent a lot of time researching hominoids and early humans, the so-called prehumans, and with my work relative to origins and human origins. And what I would do in that research was show that the prehumans, what what are called prehumans, the from the Australopithecines through Homo habilis and Homo erectus and Neanderthal, up until Cro-Magnon, all of those creatures up until Cro-Magnon don't look anything like humans, and everybody acknowledges that, that there was somehow, somehow a transformation was, was going, I mean, excuse me, a transition was going on, this is what science says, but in reality, there's just a transformation. Suddenly you have these creatures that don't look human, and then suddenly you have those that do. So a lot of my lectures dealt with the fine point of points of discussion of differences in those skulls. And that's how they came to know that I was quote the skull guy in the in the circuit of alternative knowledge researchers. I was probably the one who focused the most on skulls. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine? Yes, I sure can. Here's an offer for your listener. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, 1995 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at 
M-A-G-A, or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Bill, give us that contact information again. It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295, or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com, and they can also call 1-888-UFO-MAGA, and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with James Spangler and David Bianney. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to the Skull Guy, better known as Lloyd Pye. He's the author of The Star Child Skull, and we'll talk about the book soon. But let's now go into this particular skull. And the obvious thing I think that would occur to people when they look at the skull is that maybe it's some kind of deformity. So I gather you don't think that. Why is it not a deformity? Well, because the first thing I did was assume, make that assumption, guys. I really did. I, I, I felt, and I told Ray and Melanie at the time, I said, you know, it's probably 80% that this thing is a deformity, maybe 20% outside chance that it's something else. But let's go on the assumption that it's a deformity and find out what kind it is. And so that was, that was the thrust in the beginning. But every expert that I would take it to would just look at it pretty much and say, oh, it's a cradle-boarded hydrocephalic. Well, I could see from the very beginning that it wasn't a cradle-boarded hydrocephalic because cradle-boarding leaves certain distinctive marks that the star child didn't have, and hydrocephaly leaves certain distinctive marks that the star child didn't have. But what they do is hydrocephaly tends to make the skull expand in different parts, generally in the upper rear, in the parietal region. That's the upper top rear of your head where the crown is. And and this does have embossing, it's called, or expansion or bossing of the parietals, but it also has the standard crease down the middle of the head, down the middle of the rear of the head. Now, a lot of our listeners aren't anthropologists, so we need to have that explanation maybe converted or well, translated to English. Do, what your listeners might want to do is just go to the website and look at pictures because we have voluminous pictures of all this. The website is www.starchildproject.com. Dot com starchildproject all one word dot com and and you can see pictures but the upper rear as I was saying the upper rear of your head is your, the crown just put your hand on the upper top back of your head what the star child has is swelling of the two parietals which are the outside left and the outside right of your upper you know the upper rear of your head but it has a crease down the middle a dent down the middle down what's called the sagittal suture which you can see on the skull if that was indeed hydrocephaly which is water on the brain the pressure of the hydrocephaly whether it was water on the brain or in the brain is irrelevant but in this case it would be in the brain 
strained if it was indeed that because there are clear x-rays reveal that there are clear vein marks where the brain pressed into the bone so we know that if it it had been hydrocephaly it would be in the brain but it doesn't matter whatever it was that would have created enough internal pressure to swell the parietals would have pushed that crease out there would be no crease so a layman could really look at that and tell that it wasn't a a cradle boarded hydrocephalic but yet experts after expert would insist to me that that's what it had to be and as soon as I started challenging them on it they just didn't want to hear it they'd show me the door and that would be it so as I I finally began to find people slowly who would tell me the truth who would take time who would sit with it and study it and, and tell me things and I very quickly began as that process unfolded to realize wait a minute this thing really probably you know this, this thing is much more odds of not being human th- than I thought so f- finally I had a uh, an interview with a brain guy um, a man who specialized in, in the study of brains and he showed me how if you look at the rear of the star child you look at a profile shot and you see how the rear of its head slants down at a very steep angle right to the neck if you reach around and your own head every human being you reach around to your head the rear lower part of it you have a knot there everybody has that knot that's called the external occipital protuberance or the inion that's where your neck muscles attach two big neck muscles attach on that area and you have one of those knots on the inside and you have some things that that protect and hold your cerebellum which is one of the major parts of your brain and it's it's held in there what he said was with that angle and the extra um, he measured it out and the star child has fully one-third more brain than a skull of that size should have so it's got all this extra brain and it's pressing down at a very steep angle right toward what's called the foramen magnum or the neck hole where your spine enters into your neck which is in the star child has been moved forward a full inch and he said that brain should have been squeezing out of the foramen magnum hole and it didn't because there's absolutely no sign of of expansion of the foramen magnum. So he said either this thing doesn't have a cerebellum or a brain as we understand it, or its brain material is made of a much denser, a much thicker kind of material than our brains are made out of. And from that interview on, I said, but it's 50-50 now. This is incredible. So then I began to, to, you know, I kept moving in that direction, and more and more tests began to reveal more and more proof that the star child is not entirely human. Question for you, Lloyd, this brain specialist. On your website, there is a, um, a preliminary analysis by Dr. Ted J. Robinson. Is, the, is this the brain specialist you're referring to? No, Ted Robinson is a craniofacial plastic surgeon mm, in okay. Vancouver, British Columbia. Mm-hmm. And Ted was actually one of the first experts to sit down and really thoroughly go over the evidence in favor and against it being some kind of deformity because a craniofacial plastic surgeon is really going to know his deformities. 
And on first looking at it, Ted said, I, in 40 years, I've never seen anything like this. I, I think it's unique, but I'm not sure. I'd like a month to really hit the books and see what I can find out. And a month later, he called me, and he said, I really cannot find a single example of anything even approaching this. I think you have something totally unique. And at that point, he became one of the first official accredited scientists to really swing in behind and give some serious help and would be willing to put his name to it. Like, for example, the brain guy wouldn't put his name to it. He just told me what I, want, what I asked him to tell me, and he said, I don't ever want to see my name associated with this. And that, that was the case with a lot of them, I have to say that. Why? Because it's a, it can be a career killer for a accredited, certified scientist to be known among his peers as someone who mm. supports research, serious research, into anything to do with UFOs or aliens. That That's like the third rail of, of politics. It can kill you if you touch it the wrong way. So it takes real courage for those people to step forward and let their peers know that they're having anything to do with something like the Star Child. I suppose a number of our listeners are probably thinking about the point of view in trying to uncover information on this. I suppose there are two different ways you can come at this. One would be to say, we have a skull of unknown origin here. Is it human? Is it not human? Or we have a skull of unknown origin here, which we think because of certain visual characteristics could be some sort of an alien hybrid. Now let's prove or disprove that. I guess I'm, I want to understand, along with our listeners, what your particular stance is on this, because I'm going to obviously ask you questions about things like DNA and, and the carbon radio, radioactive testing to see what the age of this thing was. What is your particular approach into this, Lloyd? I mean, obviously you believe that this is either a hybrid creature or some sort of, of an alien, right? Well, I believe it's a hybrid. I think it's a hybrid between a human mother and an, an alien father. And because all, that's just where all the evidence points at, at this time. But as far as the, the physiological differences that lead me to believe it, the things that I've found out about it, we start with what I mentioned earlier, the fact that its bone is half as thick as it should be. It weighs half as much as normal human bone weighs. And yet, we found out later, it's two to three times as hard. It's very much harder than normal human bone. An incredible turnaround. You just wouldn't have expected that. It's completely missing its frontal sinuses, not even a vestige of frontal sinus. That They say maybe one in a million people might be born that way, but there's no re record that anybody could ever point to me that it's ever happened. And again, as we said, that knot at the back of your head, that, uh, that Indian that we all have, the star child is completely missing that. And in fact, it has a small dent or fossa in the bone where that should be. Its neck has been shifted forward considerably and shrunk. Its neck is about half the size of a human neck, normal human neck, about half the volume. That's very significant. And it's positioned underneath the direct center of balance of that new radically reshaped head. So it's like somehow nature knew how to make a dozen significant changes in a normal human skull and have it all work out just perfectly so that it functioned perfectly perfectly and it was perfectly symmetrical and that's another thing the star child is astonishingly symmetrical it's more symmetrical than most humans I, you I most of us we all have little asymmetries in our face and heads not the star child it's beautifully put together so that's you know that's an oddity the fact that its brain is as I said one-third as much 
as it should be for a skull that size. A skull that size, about the size of an average 12-year-old or a small 5-foot uh, person, should have about 1,200 cubic centimeters. You or I would probably have about 1,400 cubic centimeters of brain. The star child had 1,600 cubic centimeters packed into a 1,200 cubic centimeter space. The brain guy has no idea how that was done. Two reasons would be, though, two areas where there would be an increase would be the lack of sinuses and the expanded parietals. But another amazing feature of it is the eye sockets. The eye sockets of the star child are incredibly shallow. Normal human eye sockets are about two inches deep. The star child's at the deepest point are about 0.7 inches, not even a full inch. And the optic foramens, which are the, you know, the hole, the opening where the optic nerve comes in and where the nerves and blood vessels come in that feed the eye, those have been shoved down from the rear of the, the cone of the normal human eye socket. They've been shoved down sort of toward the middle of the nose area. So if it had eyeballs, instead of being up at the top of the bridge of the nose, they would be further down more toward the middle. So that that's another oddity. The fact that it has a very small lower face, very small. We have a piece of upper maxilla, the upper right jaw that goes with it, and that's the size of a newborn. And yet it has two robust teeth in it, or did, good size strong teeth for, for that size of maxilla and it had teeth in the upper part of that maxilla as well as if they were coming down so that's why we named it the star child in the first place although later there's now debate about whether it was a child when it died nobody really knows and there's no way to test it at this point we do know that it was 900 years old you had mentioned carbon 14 we mm-hmm. did carbon 14 dated and they are 900 uh, both skulls were 900 years old plus or minus 40 years independently dated at two different labs at two different times. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Lloyd Pye about the Star Child Project. He's author of The Star Child Skull. And you have a new edition of this book coming out. Could you tell us what that's all about? Well, actually, this is the first edition. This is the first time it's. Uh, I've just finished it. Okay. And the official publication date, the official publication date is July of this year. But we are making available to people in the alternative knowledge community until April 15th. Until April 15th, we're making available a special collector's edition. Now, what that means is that we will take pre-orders for it up until April 15th. And however many we have, that's how many we will print in the latter part of April. And then we will ship them to everybody who, who purchases one in the month of May. What's special about it is that it will have a finite number. It will look different than all other editions of the book. It will have collector's edition across the top of it. And I will personally sign and hand number every one of the copies of the print run so that that will give it 
automatic value to book collectors in the future. Normally when you buy a book, you're out the money, you put it in your library, and that's it. This book, you, you pay your money, you get your copy, and it will very quickly begin to rise in value among the world of book collectors. So it will always be worth more than you paid for it, so it's a pretty good deal. Let me ask you kind of a dumb question here, okay? Because I think some of our listeners are thinking of this. We have this skull dated 900 years ago. Is there any way someone could have fashioned this shape from an existing animal skull, say, 900 years ago, maybe for some kind of ceremonial use? Well, I tell you, it's been through the hands of probably 50, I mean, serious hands of maybe 50 or more certified experts, and not one of them has suspected anything like that. When you see it for yourself, guys, when you hold it in your hands, when you get up close to it and see it, you see very clearly it's got most of the human parts. It has a frontal bone. It has two sphenoids. It has two temporal bones. It has two uh, parietals, and it has an occipital. They're completely reconfigured, and of course, the bone itself is, is reconstituted, but basically the parts are there, and they all fit together perfectly. And when you x-ray them, and when you CAT scan it, and you do all the things that you do to verify something like that, you see that everything about it is 100% genuine. There's no cobbling it from anything. This is the way this thing's genes told it to grow. There's just no doubt about that. And if that's what its genes are telling it to do, those genes are not entirely human. That's just the bottom line. Lloyd, I'm a little concerned about this because you indicated earlier in the interview that you did indeed consult with a number of medical specialists who I would assume treat cases of hydrocephalus quite a bit. Now, they told you, as you said, more than one told you that it looked like this was indeed a case of a child that had suffered with this condition of um, of hydrocephalus. Now, I'm curious about what work has been done to compare this skull with known cases of hydrocephalus and the resulting skull deformations of those cases. What work have you done as a control factor to absolutely Well, we've be done sure? a lot. For example, um, Melanie Young, you know, with her neonatal background, she knew right away it wasn't uh, hydrocephaly. She knew what hydrocephaly, hydrocephaly and really all forms of deformity uh, that are both genetic and sperm-egg misconnection. At one time, only sperm-egg misconnects. What they all have in common basically is asymmetry and just ugliness and lopsidedness and, and just in some cases ghastliness, you know, just bad looking. This thing is, though it's very different, is very beautiful. Again, very symmetrical, very well put together. So Melanie knew it wasn't hydrocephaly, but Ted Robinson, he's just one of many, but Ted Robinson, who you mentioned earlier, he is was a craniofacial plastic surgeon. Now, he, he knows what hydrocephaly looks like. He, he just laughed. I said, they're all telling me that it's, that it's hydrocephaly. Teddy just laughed and he said, they're just trying to get rid of you. It's just a big basket. And when you don't want to deal with something like this, you go for the simplest thing you can come up with and you get the person out of your office. And that's that's what would happen because I wouldn't tell them, you know, I think I have an alien skull here. They never would have taken me in. I'd just say, I would say I have an unusual skull. I would like to show you and get your opinion of it. And when I'd walk in the door, they'd know what it was. They'd know that it, you know, it was it was poison. It was not to be there. So they They'd say, and look, this goes right up to and including, by the way, Stephen Jay Gould. I'm sure you knew of him of before he died. Yeah. Uh, I did the same thing to him, and it was like, you know, just get away. <laughs> just get away. I don't want to 
don't want anything to do with this. They know what they're seeing, and they know how dangerous it is to their careers. And so they give the simplest answer that they can, cradle voided hydrocephalic. You begin to explain to them how it can't possibly be that, and that you're out the door. They don't want anything to do with it. So you have to just recognize that though they're experts, they're human, and they're afraid. And they're afraid of peer pressure. They're afraid of losing their funding. They're afraid of losing their grants. They're afraid. And I, if I was in their shoes, I don't think I would. If I had kids and a wife to support and kids to put through college, I don't think I would do any differently, guys. I don't hold anything against them. They're doing what they feel that they have to do to maintain their position. And all I can do is applaud the ones like Ted Robinson who just step back and say, you know, I'm just going to try to find out what this thing really is and let the chips fall where they may. And that's what you know I've been counting on is those few that I've found out there who are willing to do that. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730. 2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bienney. You never know what's going to happen. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietney. We're talking about Star Child, very mysterious skull that has been dated back 900 years. And we're talking to Lloyd Pye. And by the way, his new Star Child book is available in a collector's edition. You want to find out more information about it, you can go to starchildproject.com. We have it linked directly at theparacast.com, so you could learn more information about it. Where you'd learn more information probably is if you went to the publisher's website, Bell okay. Lap Books, B-E-L-L-L-A-P Books, B-O-O-K-S, B-E-L-L-L-A-P, B-O-O-K-S.com, and that's where you can see the, the Star Child Project website pretty much will just link you to that site. All right, looking at what's been done so far with this skull, how much have you learned so far? What kind of scientific testing still needs to be done? Well, the key to it always from the beginning was DNA. Everybody knows that's the weapon of choice both for and against something like this because DNA just says what it says. But there's just got a big piece on 60 Minutes about what wonderful things it's doing catching you know criminals and, and freeing those who are wrongly accused because it's just so precise and it's just it's undeniable and it says what it says 
says each each and every time you do it. So DNA was and is the answer for the star child if we could get it. But it was really hard to get it because at 900 years, that is considered ancient DNA. 50 years is the cutoff mark. Anything within 50 years, fairly easy to recover. Anything over 50 years, gets a lot more difficult. However, the star child and the, the skull found with it were both, even though at 900 years old, they were in a mine tunnel. So it was expected that they would be very little degraded, that their DNA should be fairly easy to recover. And ultimately, in 2003, it was taken to a lab called Trace Genetics at the University of California at Davis, and those geneticists took it on and said, okay, we're going we're gonna to run it for you and see what we can come up with. Now, when you, when you go after DNA, you go after two types. There's mitochondrial DNA and there's nuclear DNA. In all your cells, you have both. In each cell, you have both. You have a cell nucleus, which contains all of the genomic package that your parents give to you at the moment of your conception, and it stays the same through the course of your life. And if, if you have children, you pass your portion of it on to your offspring. And that amounts to all 23 chromosomes from your mother, all 23 from your father's, all 46 of them are in the nucleus of the cell, and that amounts to the total package of 3 billion, 3 billion with a B, base pairs. So it's, it's very, very dense and complex inside the nucleus. Floating outside the nucleus in little chips called mitochondria or mitochondrial DNA, which is only about 16,000 base pairs long, which is minuscule compared to the 3 billion in the nucleus. But still, the mitochondria can be recovered, and it's, and it's well known what lies where with all types of humans, and that's why we know that we all descend from roughly seven, that's why it's called the seven, the seven eaves of humanity. Seven different women seem to have created all human beings. We all work our way back to one of those seven types, and that's all done through mitochondria. So it's very, very well known. So when it came time for Trace Genetics to do the DNA on both the human, the normal skull that we had, and the star child, we were looking for, for answers clear and clean, and sure enough, when they did the human one, its mitochondrial DNA came up very easily, first time, no problem, nice and clear in the gels, and it was haplogroup A, meaning it was just a type of Mesoamerican that's very well known, nothing unusual about it. When it's nuclear DNA was tested, that too came up very clear, very easy, first time, no problem, and it was shown to be a female. So whoever that woman was who buried the star child, it, it was a woman. Whoever that person was, it was a woman. Then when the star child's mitochondrial DNA was tested, it came up also very clear, very clean, first attempt, haplogroup C, meaning a different type of Mesoamerican, but also proving that they were not mother and child. For a long time, up until then, we assumed they were probably mother and child. Who else would bury a body and then lay down and die with it? You know, put the arm, leave the arm sticking out of the out of the grave, wrap it around the upper arm bone, and take poison or cut her wrists or whatever and die. Who would do that except a mother? Well, uh, this woman, because she wasn't its mother. So we knew that much. But then when it came time to do the star child's 
nuclear DNA, that's where we hit a problem. In seven full attempts, one of which was contaminated, but otherwise six full clean attempts, no recovery at all of any kind. And guys, what that means is basically dad is not human. Because if dad was human, we know mom is human. So if dad's human, that DNA is going to pull up with human-only primers. That's what human-only primers do. They recover human-only DNA. The fact that they couldn't find anything in the nucleus when they found it so easily out in the mitochondria said right away at 203, I knew it wasn't human and we were going to be able to prove it someday. Now, the geneticists understand, everybody should understand this, they have to say, well, we can't say that's alien. We have to say, and we will say, that that's some kind of bizarre degradation that we can't imagine and we've never seen before, but it's possible that it's some kind of bizarre degradation. Well, yeah, right, a, a billion to one, a million to one, any odds you want, that's what science does. It has to hide behind the possibilities when it can explain things but you know I'm telling you straight up we knew in 203 this thing was not that dad was not entirely human now the question though at that time and the reason I, had, I didn't come forward and didn't say anything because I had nothing to I couldn't prove it I couldn't prove how far dad was away from normal and that's important is dad only one one hundredth of a percent away from normal that would be enough to miss the primers is he one tenth of a percent that would be enough is he one percent that would be more than enough to miss for the primers to miss if he's only 1% different than humans but what if he's say 3% different that's as different as chimps are what if he's 5% that's as different as gorillas are what if he's 10% that's as alien as alien gets but we had no way to give that distance away from the norm because primers were very very limited in in their scope their chemical keys that sort of fit in locks of about 500 to 1000 days pairs long not enough to be to give you a real clear picture so we were in 203 we were just hamstrung and that's when I decided to write the book because my geneticist told me they said you you should check the bone chemistry first but you're looking at a wait of three to five years until technology catches up and we'll be able to tell you something more specifically about this thing so I went to England to do more research on the chemistry of the bone and then in 206 we had a real last year last, late last summer we had a super breakthrough in our favor we want to hear from you if you have a comment or question about the Paracast send it to news at theparacast.com that's news at theparacast.com and don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, and we are talking with Lloyd Pye, and amongst other things, he is author of a new book about the Star Child called The Star Child's Skull, subtitled Genetic Enigma or Human Alien. 
hybrid. David. Lloyd, in the um, mitochondrial DNA analysis, tell me about what they found in terms of X and Y chromosomes, please. They didn't. You don't You don't have that. The okay. amylogenin reacts at the nuclear level, but not at the mitochondrial level because all it, it only comes from your mother. If I didn't say that, I should have. Mitochondrial DNA only comes from your mother. And so if it's there, it's her DNA, really, that you're looking at. Mm-hmm. So that's it. There's no way to sex it off of that. You have really? to recover so, nuclear DNA to be able to sex it. So the nuclear DNA recovery did not reveal the presence of an X and Y chromosome pair? No. It, amylogenin, nothing. None of the primers, mm-hmm. not amylogenin, not anything worked at the nuclear level, no. So basically what you're sort of saying then is that what we still have is a question mark because essentially you've not, there's been no nuclear DNA analysis to reveal one way or another right. what the makeup That's was. That's exactly so, right. We still okay. have a question mark, but, but as I said earlier, there was a breakthrough last year, mm-hmm. just last year, in the field of genetic research that is going to allow that question mark to be answered. And here's how it's gonna how it's gonna go. Late last summer, a company called Four Five Four Life Sciences of Brantford, Connecticut, announced that they had developed a new technology that did away with primers. You no longer have to sequence with primers. You can do it on a base pair by base pair arrangement, meaning that you can break down and recover all three billion base pairs. Now remember, this has already been done by the Human Genome Project. It took them 10 years, if you remember, to to figure out how to do it and then very slowly get better at it and then get better at it. And they did most of it in the last two years of that 10-year project because in learning how to do it better, they just got much quicker at it. Well, this is the next step in the technology of doing that. So it allows the full sequencing of the whole genome right now in two years. And that is being applied to one of the great holy grails of science, of biology biological science anyway, is to the Neanderthal. They are now sequencing the nuclear DNA of a Neanderthal because remember when I was saying we don't know where the star child lays away from the human norm. Well, the same thing was true of the Neanderthal. We know where a chimp is, we know where a gorilla is, and we know where a human is. But we didn't know where a Neanderthal lies on that line. Is it closer to a chimp? Is it closer to a human? That's what geneticists and everybody else wanted to know. So that's part of why the impetus for creating the 454 technology. Well, they got it. And so now they're right now very busily sequencing the Neanderthal genome. And the answer is expected by the end of next year, about the time of the presidential election, in fact. This is so that way we can test the nominees to see if they're Neanderthals or not. There you go. It'll be be easy to make that comparison. Hey, which one is closer to the Neanderthal? Exactly. But also it means that you can test other things as well by the same technique, including the star child. What it means is you can ultimately, eventually, we will be able to take all of the star child's DNA, its base pairs, lay them down beside humans, 
every single gene, every single chromosome, and you can compare them, literally base pair by base pair, to see what the differences are. So that percentage difference that we discussed a little while ago will no longer be just what something we need, it will be something we have, and we will be able to compare it. And then the, the only question becomes is, becomes how far away from the human norm does the star child, and particularly the star child's father, lie? You know, I'm betting, based on just the physiological differences, it's going to be significantly far away, maybe maybe 5%, maybe 10%, because if you look, just look at the differences in the bone, there is absolutely nothing, nothing about that skull that's human except for the general shape of the cranial bones. Again, the frontal bone, temples, uh, occipital, the parietals, like that. So, other than that, uh, there's... Well, there's... Lloyd, Lloyd, hold on. I've got to stop sure. you there. It's not like the skull is made of any base materials that are any different from a human skull. So I'd have to correct you on that. It's not like this skull is not anything like a human skull. There are, in your opinion, sort of some core differences that would cause you to question this. But in terms of the actual material makeup of it, it's not like you found anything that says, well, this is made of completely different material. There's no calcium in the skull. Gee, it's not even human bone. But it's not like human bone. It has vastly more collagen than it should have. You're jumping on me before we've had time to talk about it, but the bone is really not the same at all. In fact, it's not only not the same as human bone, it's not the same as any bone. You have an overload of collagen in it, way more than it should have. And if you go on the website, you can see this very clearly. Right. Embedded, we found when we did a, a scanning electron microscope examination of it, embedded in the bone, in the matrix of the bone, are fibers of extreme durability. Remember I told you it was very, the bone was very much harder? It's harder to cut. It's very hard to cut it. And so we found that these fibers are dangling out of the cancellous holes and out of the, the matrix of the bone, and they've been not cut by the Dremel blade that, that cut the bone, but shredded, and you can see them very clearly under the microscope. So those fibers are absolutely unprecedented in any known bone that there is on planet Earth. So that's fairly significant. Furthermore, later in another type of testing that was done in England, we found those in England, by the way, in another round of testing there, we found that in the cancellous holes of the star child, and that's the bone, the area of the bone between the cortical layers that looks kind of like Swiss cheese, where bone marrow moves, where bone marrow exists in the bone. And when you die, that area, all of that is cleaned out by bacteria. I mean, absolutely scoured, gone. After 900 years, there shouldn't be a shred of anything in its cancellous holes, and yet there is still some kind of reddish residue that's very visible. You can, again, on the website, you can see it. And that residue is also completely unknown in any kind of bone at all at any significant period after death. So there you go. You've got bones. It really is not human, actually, though the shapes are the actual context and content of the bone is not really close to human. Chemical analysis on that residue, has that been performed? No, um, it hasn't for the reason that because it's 
nobody knows what it is. There are no protocols for recovery of it. It's very microscopic in size and uh, testing of it, but also to, to create the protocols, to create the equipment to recover it uncontaminated, to be able to test it, to do all these things. Very expensive. We just don't, you know, we don't, we're not made of money. We can't yeah. do all the things that we would like to do. Here's what we're hoping for, guys. What we're hoping for is that when the 454 testing is done, we're just, we're just putting our eggs in that basket right. because that's the place that science will respect. There's nothing we can do relative to the fibers, relative to the red residue, relative to any kind of, of abnormality that is present in it that will impress science. All they will say is anything is possible. Because I heard that. I can't tell you how many times. You know, when I'd really start ripping off all the differences to these guys, boy, they'd get some of them would get red in the face and they'd say, listen, listen to me. I don't care if you tell me a thousand things like this. Anything is possible in the world of deformity. Anything. You know, like that. They just defend it like that. You will not get anything past them because of that blanket caveat. Anything is possible in the world of deformity. But the reality of it is there are limits beyond which you go and you're off into another dimension of some kind, and that's where the star child is. But let's just not quibble about it. I just got tired of arguing with them. It's just down to DNA. I'm willing to push the, all my chips out to the middle of the table and bet on the 454 result because okay. I'm very confident that result's going to come in that the star child's father was not human and so therefore the star child is an alien human, a human alien hybrid. Now I know that neither Gene nor myself are going to claim to be geneticists, but what if you get the 454 nuclear DNA analysis and that reveals the presence of both X and Y chromosomes? Then absolutely not a problem. We, you know, we took our shot, we did the best we could and that's the answer and we all move forward. Look, okay. I just want it over with. This thing has dominated my life for eight years. It's going to mm -hmm. dominate my life for another three or four. But eventually, this thing is over, and I go back to living a normal life. And I would like that, you know, like that to be as soon as possible. I'm tired of it, man. I really am. I think it's going to get the answer that we anticipate. I think it's going to be historic, and I think it's going to change the way we view everything. So I think it's worth the effort that I have put in and continue to put in with it, because in the long run, I, I believe we're going to get the, the answer that we anticipate, because there's 20, 30 things that line up in our favor and really nothing on the other side, nothing at all that I can see. There's not been a single test that really didn't go our way, except, well, I should say this, and I will mention the fact that I talk about it clearly and extensively in the book, that we had an original test done, DNA, in 1999 in a forensic lab, one of your CSI labs in Canada, and their initial, even though they were not equipped to do ancient bone, they said, we think we might be able to get a recovery of the nuclear DNA so that we can tell you whether or not you need to go forward with the more extensive, full you know, analytical DNA testing. And at the time, that sounded pretty good. And, you know, for five grand, we could do that. So we did it. And they just simply made a mistake. And they said that they got what they thought was a reading of it as human. And so for three years, that was the result. I was by that time convinced that they were wrong, but I couldn't, what could I say? You know, that was geneticists. And there you were. So three years later, someone we 
decided to take another run at it, and that's when we got it into the ancient DNA lab that specialized in recovery of that kind of DNA, and that's where we were able to prove that the first lab had just simply made a mistake because it wasn't equipped to handle bone metal. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and Data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.net. It's all out of this world. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with James Spangler and David Bianchi. You never know what's going to happen next. Let me tell everybody, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Lloyd Pye, and he's author of a forthcoming book called The Star Child Skull, subtitled Genetic Enigma or Human-Alien Hybrid. I would imagine also, Lloyd, that if it were found to be some kind of conventional entity, being, whatever, earthbound completely, you wouldn't have to worry about a lot of work after this two- or three-year interval, but otherwise you'll have twice as much work to do. Well, I don't know. What I've been told, actually, is, is let's say that it does prove out to be just a human, a human deformity. It is now, at that point, the most unusual and bizarre human deformity way beyond the elephant man ever seen. Okay? It's got so many things bizarre about it. And it's totally so unique, of, you're saying. There's nothing else like this on the planet that we found? Nothing else is... Not that anybody has ever found up to now. That's totally unique. Now, if you if you want to talk weird skulls, there's another group of them out there called the Coneheads down in Peru. And I think it's very likely that they could prove out to be not entirely human as well. But there are hundreds of those, literally hundreds of them. They were uh, like a, a tribe of people down there. They have brains, on average, twice the size of ours. On, between 20, We have 1,400 cubic centimeters on average. Their brains, which is 
why they're called coneheads, are average 2,800 to 3,000 cubic centimeters of brain. We're not talking conehead in the sense of the famous Saturday Night Live sketch and that... The Saturday Night Live things were taken, modeled after them. One of the people on the show had been to Peru, been to the museums and, and seen them and thought they were. Those are funny looking. Is that and Dan like, Aykroyd who was familiar with all this crazy stuff? Dan Aykroyd is very much into this stuff. Yeah, That's I don't right. know if it was Dan Aykroyd who initiated that or not, but they put the coneheads straight up because it was easier from a costuming point of view, but the actual coneheads, their, their cone slopes backwards on their heads. It's easy. All you got to do is Google conehead skulls and boom, you'll, you'll pull up all kinds of pictures of them. It's not really a problem. But uh, as far as the, the star child, no, there, there's nothing like it. But here's what I was told, and this is very interesting. Like it or not, whoever feels this is wrong to do, we're moving ahead with genetic engineering. We're moving ahead. Other countries, the United States may get left behind, but there are other countries that are working on fiddling with our genetic programming to make it better, to, to improve things, to cut out the mistakes, and to, and to make things better. Whatever the gene is that makes the star child's bone so hard, that adds the extra collagen, or maybe even puts the fibers in there. Whatever that is, is someday going to be applicable to all of humanity. That's the exciting, if, if it's completely normal in the sense that it's a deformity, but it's human all the way, mom and dad were human, no problem. One of the things to look for out of this research is the ability to harden all of our bones such that our joints wear, won't wear out in old age and, you know, they won't break as easily in accidents, and which would be, in and of itself, would just be a wonderful, wonderful thing. And I think within 50 years or maybe even less, that would be a distinct possibility. Well, uh, there's one question about... Um, well, I guess it's a two-part question. Has there been any attempt to go back to find where these skulls were originally found to see if there were skeletons to recover? And has there been any cultural anthropological work done to try to find any existence of anecdotal tales of people in that area at that time that would in any way corroborate the notion of a hybrid alien human child? Well, the answer to the first one is no, we don't know specifically where because when the woman told, passed them on to the first couple, mm -hmm. all she said was about 100 miles southwest of Chihuahua and that was it. So all anybody knows about where it would have been. Now, as far as the cultural aspects of it, yeah, there are. there's a woman named Paula Gunn Allen well, Dr. Paula Gunn-Allen, who's a, a retired emeritus professor at UCLA, and as of Native American extraction herself, she, she part of her research career was devoted to the so-called star being legends of all uh, Native American tribes and Mesoamerican tribes. Mm -hmm. And generally, the, in a nutshell, it is that beings come down from the heavens, would pick out a village, pick out a woman in the village, and that woman would almost invariably be barren. Well, would have no children. They would make her pregnant, and they would tell the village that she's now going to have a special child, and you're all responsible for raising it up to the age of five or six or seven or eight, and we'll come get it. We're okay? talking on the Paracast with Lloyd Pye, and he is the author of a forthcoming book called The Star Child Skulls, subtitled Genetic Enigma for Or human-alien hybrid, which is it? Well, that may be the question of the ages. Well, I have to knock over your microphone, otherwise we're going to go over time. Sorry about that, Lloyd. We want to thank you again for joining us on the Paracast. Thank you. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. 
Okay, so now we've heard about the star child from Lloyd Pye. And now, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the other shoe to drop. The heck was that? <laughs> was that the star shoe dropping? What, 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 what was that? <laughs> I think that was the shoe worn by the star child. Oh, man. I have a lot of problems with Lloyd's claims about this. I think that in some ways, yeah, visually, the, the skull is kind of interesting. But at the same time... This idea that everything hangs in the balance of whether or not this um, nuclear DNA test will reveal whether there is or isn't the presence of X and Y chromosomes, I think that's really edgy. Let's step back for a moment, though, because Lloyd brought up that he approached Stephen Jay Gould and wanted Stephen's comments on this, and Gould said, get away from me. You know, I can't be associated with this. It will hurt my credibility. That's crap, and I'll tell you why. I don't even believe that happened. Because anybody who knows anything about Stephen Jay Gould knows very well that he was a very influential thinker in the realm of biology, evolutionary biology specifically, and was also very daring. This is a guy who, you know, the term iconoclast fits him to a T. This is not someone who fell in line with conventional theory, with conventional wisdom. A lot of Gould's work was considered highly controversial, and he was someone who I think was really willing to put his reputation on the line if he felt that an idea had merit and that it was feasible. So my guess is that Gould looked at this and said, well, this is probably the result of a severe deformity. This is not a, you know, an alien hybrid or an, a pure alien being. And I think that by Lloyd making the claim that he approached Gould and that Gould said this to him, I don't believe it at all. I think I think it's fabricated. So that makes me question a lot of the claims here, Gene. It really sounds to me, and again, a number of our listeners will say, "Well, you've had the guy on. Now you're going to trash him." No, I, I'm. You know, well, gonna, people are going to say what they want to say. We certainly on our show reserve the right to express our opinions in the way that we feel is appropriate. Uh, we gave Lloyd his, his 45, 50 minutes to talk. And in the end, I think what will happen next year when the nuclear DNA testing is accomplished, we will indeed find X and Y chromosomes. I can't guarantee that. Nobody can guarantee anything. But I'm guessing that's much more likely than not. You know, when you have all of these different researchers looking at it saying, mm, nah, this is, you know, this is the result of, of a known deformity. This is not unusual. And then you have Lloyd searching for the guy who's going to tell him what he wants to hear. And then that's the guy who he puts forward. To me, that's a technique of pseudoscience. That's not scientific inquiry. And so um, I have problems with this. Would it be fascinating if this were indeed the skull of some hybrid creature? Well, sure it would be. But that's why I asked him if he went and searched for any anecdotal evidence of stories in that area to support the idea of there having been an interaction between some alien being and, let's say, an alien father and a human mother. You would think that if this happened, the local peoples there, the local Indian tribes, would have recorded this in some way. They talk about star people who mated. Well, in general terms, but, you know, it, Lloyd could not answer questions about anecdotal evidence that he searched for in that general area. He skirted the question. If you're serious about your research, 
You're going to go and you're going to do that work. He didn't do that work. So to me, I don't think he has a very strong story. I really don't. There was another issue that I think you took issue with, another issue that concerns you, and that is where he refers to anthropologists as largely self-taught. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but there are lots of people out there who have degrees in anthropology from lots of major universities. Absolutely. So that's like telling me that you've got a physicist who's self-taught. Or I'd sooner buy a physicist or a mathematician who's self-taught. In the terms of anthropology, we're talking about a field that requires a bunch of theory work, a whole lot of biology, a whole lot of field work. It it involves all three. We're talking about having work that's peer-reviewed, and that's the part also where Lloyd's stuff completely falls apart. He can show no real peer reviews of his quote unquote work. Now, if you're putting yourself forward as someone who is a scientist, and you know, this is something that, Gene, I've always been very careful on the Paracast in terms of the way I refer to myself. I always say I'm a student of the paranormal. I don't say that I'm a qualified scientist. It's clear that science will only get us so far in discussions of the paranormal, and at some point we have to fall back on the time-tested and honored tradition of intuition. You know, there are some listeners that are listening to this right now going, oh my God, oh my God, he said the I word. Well, intuition is very useful for things like, well, I mean, it served Tesla real well in you know, that little thing called alternating current. Um, And then, you know, Tesla was able to take those intuitive ideas he had and put them into practice. But the sourcing a lot of, of, of his ideas was indeed intuition. I really feel that Lloyd is a prototypical pseudoscientist. I think he is trying to utilize science for where it benefits him and ignore it for where it doesn't. And I don't believe that this is a skull of a hybrid creature. I reserve the right to be wrong at all times. Well, coming up next is a discussion that involves a lot of personal experience. And maybe there isn't so much hard evidence, but doesn't make it less compelling. And that's ghosts. And we'll be talking to Lorraine Warren, a real ghost hunter, next on the Paracast. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception, day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car. A sleep timer. An alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support 
this show by visiting our site, theparacast.com. That's theparacast.com. Right now, click on the C-Crane Sponsor button to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free C-Crane catalog. Place your order today. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Jesus and David Bianchi. You never know what's going to happen next. Lorraine Warren, welcome to the Paracast. And I have a question from one of our listeners who was posted in our message forums this week. And I'll read to you exactly as it is with no comment, and maybe you have a sense of what this is about, okay? Because I don't Okay, it says, and we quote, I see Lorraine Warren is going to be on soon. I just wanted to let you know that she has some rather freaky audio recordings of some alleged supernatural beings. If I remember correctly, one she calls the Parrot Lady. If you get a chance ahead of time, ask her about it. I heard it on the radio once, and she said not to record it or bad things will happen. I recorded it anyway, and soon after left the tape in a bag with other tapes in my friend's car, and my friend got his car broken into. They stole that bag of tapes. Could be a coincidence, of course. Or is it, Lorraine? What do you think? Well, we, what's he talking about, first of all? All right. The Enfield, England case, it's in an area of Middlesex, outside of London. Ed and I were involved in that case for seven years. The scientific community were the ones who really got, how shall I say, got into this first, and they got into the house itself. The family was directed to the British Society for Psychic Research. A very good friend of ours from California and also a psychic researcher along with us had gone over to visit his brother in England. And while he was there, he decided to stop at the British Society for Psychic Research at the offices. And he heard about the case. As a result, he had the family contact us. We spent seven years on that case. Every time that Ed would find that he was being able to convince the family that if we brought in religious, you know, clergy and had the place blessed or exercised, it might be of help. It couldn't possibly be poltergeist phenomena. Although it started out as your typical poltergeist phenomena with the movement of objects, but at one point, the spirit voice phenomena, you would be in a room and it could come from the floors, it could come from the ceiling, it could come from the walls, and There were two sisters and two brothers. The one sister dematerialized on two occasions, dematerialized for up to 17 and a half minutes. And on another occasion, she actually went through a wall. They were a council family, which is similar to our welfare in this country. And she went through a wall and went 
into the family next door. She had a book in her hand. She was lying on her bed reading when this occurred to her. And she came in the front door, and scientists were all there. The scientists convinced the family that an exorcism was only going to make matters worse, and it could actually kill the girl. And they were using, as an example, the case of that young German girl that died during an exorcism. They were using that, kind of hanging it over uh, Margaret's head, you know, telling her that that could happen to her family. And she was a very simple woman, a very simple woman. And this one day, Ed was convinced he was going to be able to get the Anglican clergy there with a priest that we had worked with on numerous occasions. Ed and I have spent well over 20 years in the United Kingdom where research is concerned, and of our 10 books, nine of them are also published in the UK. And there is still photos. There was video back then, and of where they would be in the same dream, the girls, and they would levitate and crisscross in the air in their dreams. The case was absolutely phenomenal, but the voices, they were bizarre. They were so bizarre. And on one occasion, I had to come back to the States because there were so many things that were being left unfinished here. And I came back to the States again, and I had two of Ed's researchers go over there and, and work with him. And he was going to be coming home about the time of his birthday, which was September 7th. And it was a time that, you know, we were just about, he'd just about be home, and we were starting our university lecture circuit, you know, for first semester. And I decided I wanted to do something very special for him here at home. And what I was going to do is he wanted these cabinets built out in his study and underneath where he could keep all of the electronic equipment. And he wanted a closet out there, a big closet, a cedar closet, where he could put all his woolen stuff because all our woolens were from Scotland. And then you know about Annabelle, that Raggedy Ann doll that's caused so much havoc here in the States. And that doll actually caused the death of a young man, oh, caused all kinds of havoc. Well, I was going to be going into New York to do a show this particular day. And my mother uh, was going to be coming up and going into the city with me for company. And um, I was out watching the men, what they were doing out in, in Ed's study that is now the museum. And the men said to me, one was a cabinet maker, the other was a carpenter, and they wanted me to hold this doll so that they could measure the fall of the legs to know where to put the doll on a shelf in this glass case that they were making for it. And the reason we were doing that is to hold in the bad vibrations from that doll that had already caused so much, so many problems. And so I 
wet my two hands with holy water, and I lifted the doll and so that they could measure. With this, the phone rang in the, in the study. The phone rang, and I picked up the phone. Now, it was Ed. Ed didn't say to me, honey, how are you? How's the weather? What are you doing? He said, what are you doing? Oh, no, he did say, what are you doing? He says, what are you doing? With an edge to his voice, I said, wow. I says, hi, hon. Back to him. He said, what are you doing? I said, it's a surprise. And he said, do you have that doll? And are you putting it on a shelf? The voices told him what I was doing. Um, Lorena, I'm not completely clear on how this relates to the question the listener That's the had same about family. It's the, the same doll family. It's the same family. It's the same family, dear. The spirit voices are in the Enfield Middlesex thing. That's the voice. That's so you, the voices. These Sometimes voices. they would come from the walls. Sometimes they sound like this woman that had like a, a parrot pitch to her voice. Other other times, it was this um, guy. They would call themselves all kind of names by d- different names. They weren't human spirits. They weren't well, human spirits at all. But you you were able to capture this voice on tape. There's so many of these tapes. It is very very dangerous to play it. And the reason we are not using it publicly, like we were, even for the universities, is because it seems to have very bad repercussions where certain sensitive people are concerned. If you're looking for a better way to present or collaborate during your conference calls, your solution is simple. Web conferencing with GoToMeeting. During your call, everyone logs on to GoToMeeting.com, and your computer screen shows up on their computer screens. It's like you're all in the same room. GoToMeeting is perfect for sales or product demos, training, or real-time collaboration. Plus, you're not charged per minute like other providers. You can meet as often as you want for as long as you need. With GoToMeeting, you can meet with anyone, anywhere, without leaving your office. You'll not only save time, but money, too. See for yourself. Try GoToMeeting free for 45 days. Just visit GoToMeeting.com forward slash podcast. That's GoToMeeting.com forward slash podcast. Try GoToMeeting today. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast.
Okay, let me just tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, and we're talking to Lorraine Warren, a ghost hunter, and we're trying to reconcile this very strange case <laughs> with the experiences you had. De- yes, the parrot lady. And the question I have here is, what is there about this recording that in any way would have made this gentleman, listener, who wrote us this letter, feel that it might have had something to do with the theft of these items from the car, one of which contained the recording. Because of the fact that what we are dealing with there has intelligence. It had the intelligence to tell my husband what I was doing over 3,000 miles away, and they are not human spirits that are there that definitely are not human. They are inhuman, diabolical spirits. That is why I was relating it to you about just what lengths they can go to in in a case where the diabolical is concerned. And they have the wisdom and the cunning of the ages. Lorraine, something that we've talked about on the Paracast quite a bit is the idea that on the planet Earth, Perhaps there there are other civilizations that have been here that perhaps continue to maintain a presence here in another dimensional context. I'm wondering if, in the years that you've been researching this material, if you've seen proof that we're dealing, when we talk about things like demonic entities... Mm-hmm. And uh, we talk about shadow people in the in the ghost realm, and then also there are these reports of uh, things that people feel are alien beings that are also somewhat negative in their interactions with people. I don't believe that they're really alien beings. I don't believe that that is if if in the event they are negative, as you would say, mm-hmm. you are not dealing with anything that is human. And, of course, Ed was a religious demonologist, one of the most knowledgeable laymen in the area of religious demonology. I mean, you see how many of these so-called ghost hunters and like this are using that title. Oh, my God. They could never hold a candle to that man. I mean, he studied the areas of all religions, but... In a case like this, when you have outward manifestations, when you command what is there in the name of Christ, because this was a Christian family, you have outward manifestations occurring. You are not dealing with anything other than an inhuman, diabolical spirit. There's a key to something you just said, though. And again, I'm wondering about, well, something we always talk about on the show are the sources of all sorts of paranormal entities and events, trying to figure Mm -hmm. out how these things are caused. Now, there's something you just said about this family being religious and their background. This, of course, is going to lead me to some questions I want to know about your background and your religious upbringing. But to what extent do you think there is a possibility, and again, we talk about possibilities on this show, a Mm -hmm. possibility that many of these physical manifestations are in fact sourced or they're created by the emotional and psychic energy that the people themselves have, or does that psychic and emotional context provide an opportunity for some sort of an external force to work their way in? Oh, they do. 
Oh, yes, you are very right and where that is concerned. Yes. In other words, that that is why you see homes where it's a wonder the roof isn't exploding off the house. And they move out of that house. They flee the house. Another family moves in and might not experience anything. It has a great deal to do with the emotional state of mind of the individuals who live in these homes. But what is the possibility that some of the physical manifestations are essentially the results of some form of telekinesis on the part of the people experiencing the events in a home? In certain cases where poltergeist phenomena is concerned, Mm -hmm. yes, their energy is used to a certain extent. But in, in this case, it started like that then it reaches a point where you're de- when you're dealing with intelligence with an intelligent force then something else has been attracted and that something else is not human spirit at all what is it inhuman it's something that has never walked the earth in human form except through the possession or oppression of a living person. You know, I wanted to ask you something that just kind of struck me at the beginning of the conversation where you talked about this girl who had been able to move through walls. She dematerialized. Right. She didn't move through walls. She couldn't move through this wall. There were brick walls, you know, that separated the So she dematerialized through the wall. She dematerialized for up to 17 and a half minutes uh, at a time on, on two different occasions during our research. And as a way of traveling from one place to another then? And the reason I'm asking this is because some of the so-called UFO abduction cases talk mm-hmm. about passing through walls mm-hmm. and doors yes. and such. Yes, they, they do. Yes, I know that. I can't say that I've ever been involved in that area of, of study and research to give an educated answer to that. I only know, you know, my, my own work and the different, you know, the different types of phenomena that occur, why it occurs, and, and how we are able to either get the help for the family or get the counseling for the family that they need to get through this troubled times. Lorraine, when we talk about these sorts of negative encounters, uh, for example, the poltergeist encounters, these are things that have been happening for a long time, aren't they? This is not just something that's happening in the modern world. We're talking about things that perhaps even predate the Judeo-Christian religious history. Oh, of course. Oh, my God. You know, oh, my God, and it left me what, what the name of the bookstore is in London, but Ed was always picking up these very, very old books, you know, on, on psychic phenomena. And he was he was very fond of Harry Price, the researcher that investigated Morley as well as many other places. And not to get away from the subject that we're on, but he appeared to me in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Harry Price. Do you know who Harry Price was? Give us a little bit of background on him, please. He was a psychic researcher, and he was um, from from England. He had done a great deal of work on on the Borley Rectory, which was the, one of the most haunted churches and rectories in all of England. Ed and I 
spent so much time involved in that case. Ed's interest in him and, and reading a great deal about him years and years ago, you know, when we were very, very young. That is really one of the things that kind of drew us to England. But when we first started to go to England for research purposes, we went to investigate historic psychic photographs to either prove that they were reality or, you know, expose them for fraudulent photography. And as a result of that, we got involved with Morley. And one thing right after another, we have spent more than 20 years, almost 25 years, over in the United Kingdom uh, doing research throughout and became affiliated with the University of Edinburgh through a couple of their professors just months before it collapsed in 2001. And at that time, we were still extremely active. Ed and I had come home from Edinburgh and left for Japan, where we worked with Buddhist monks in the mountains of Japan. It was fascinating. Working with these men and working on these these hauntings was just a real... I can't even explain it to you. You're not dealing with people that speak the same language, but the the interest, and it was all filmed, you know, um, from Tokyo. The film crew followed us all over on these different hauntings. Hauntings are the same the world over, but the cultures are all different, all completely different. Whether we're in Australia, whether we're in Japan, whether we're in the United Kingdom or Europe, hauntings are the same, the same type of thing. It's our energy that fuels it. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, and we're talking to, I guess we'll call you a ghost hunter, Lorraine Warren, a psychic researcher or a ghost hunter. Which do you prefer? Oh, it don't matter, dear. (laughs) It doesn't matter at all. You can call me a psychic researcher. That's what we've spent a good part of our adult life doing. Well, how did you get dragged into this crazy business? My husband grew up in a home that was very haunted in Bridgeport, Connecticut. And his dad was a state cop. And the clergy were at the house a lot, blessing the house and everything. But there was never answers. His father forbid those kids to ever go outside the house and talk about 
the things that occurred in that home that were so terrifying and so frightening for a young boy. He had a twin sister, and he had an older brother. And as a result of what he witnessed and never having a clear-cut answer for what really triggered that, Ed had to research to find out was there something about his family or did these things really happen to other people and that's how we began we began just out of curiosity and myself from the time I'd been nine years old I attended a private Catholic girls school and I began seeing light around people when I realized that everybody wasn't seeing these lights and that it was very frowned upon by the nuns and that my parents, although they were the kindest, most loving Irish Catholic home that I grew up in, they didn't really understand really what it was that I was seeing. I was seeing the auras of people at a very, very young age. And I suppressed these feelings when I realized that others were not seeing what I could see. And now, when Ed, we were married, my husband's a war hero from World War II. We were married on survivor's leave. Our daughter was born while Ed was still in active duty, and because he went back into active duty after the ships went down. And so it started out that when he came home from service, he pursued a career in art. We're both professional artists. Art funded us. It enabled us to travel. It enabled us to research. And that's how it began. It just began in that way. How these things all happened to us that we became known in university life as America's top ghost hunters, you know, it's... It's just something that was beyond our comprehension. What we were trying to do is to more or less satisfy the curiosity of my husband regarding the horrible things that happened in that home that there were never, ever answers to. Lorraine, what was Ed's religious background? We're both Roman Catholic. How do you reconcile your religious belief system Mm -hmm. with paranormal things like ghostly possession like poltergeist how do you draw oh, a line? i have no trouble there well, how, no well problem. Where, where is that line then i'm curious there isn't a line it would be a very crooked line there is no real line we are going in to a home say we are going in to investigate the phenomena that mm -hmm. is taking place and then when we are able to research and document that this is taking place, we are the ones going to the church to get them to come in to bless these homes. But every home is not a Catholic home, isn't even right. a Christian home. Right. We've worked with rabbis, we've worked with Buddhist monks, we've worked with all religions where our work is concerned. And I'm still, as my husband was, still very, very close to our Roman Catholic faith. We abide by the church, and we're church-going people. Now, not all ghostly apparitions, ghostly entities, are negative in nature, right? No, I mean, of course not. Right. 
No, um, they're human spirits that have not accepted their death and are remaining on. Now, are some of these spirits aware of their predicament? I've come to understand that in certain apparition cases, these things appear to be some sort of a remnant energy, almost like a tape loop playing, where they're Mm -hmm. not aware of their environment versus, let's say, an entity that can actually communicate and interact with someone who is, for lack of a better way of putting it, alive still. All right. Now, let me tell you what you're talking about. You're talking about ghosts. Mm-hmm. And the ghosts are, you know, no, you're not going to be communicating with a ghost. An apparition is someone that can be recognized, someone that might be earthbound. And that spirit sometimes just requires communication, talking to them, or having some sort of a um, service set in the home in order to help them to accept their death and pass on. In a case in New Haven, Connecticut, let's look at that. There was a Roman Catholic family, a doctor and his wife, who purchased this home. They had all sorts of phenomena occurring in the house. There were friends of ours at the house that night, and one was a Catholic priest and another was a Jewish couple from California. And so they said they wanted to go with us. The Catholic priest wanted to go, and and so the Moses, they wanted to go with us too. So we all went up to the house. Everything was fine where the Jewish couple were concerned, but the Catholic priest, the ghost, made it certain that he didn't want that man in the house. So that was a shocker to say the least. I sat down on the couch, and there was like a pair of couches. They were on either side of a fireplace. And I sat down, and all of a sudden, I could see this man. I could see him. I could see the um, underwear that he was wearing, like one of these one-piece, old-fashioned underwear with the flap in the back. Mm-hmm. And, and he walked out of bed and walked over by the edge of the balcony looking down at me. And I could see him, and I began to talk to him and ask him what it was that was causing him to cause so much havoc in this home. He didn't want this couple that were there. He didn't want them in his house. And I said, but you don't live here anymore. I said, how can we help you? And then he went on to tell about how he had married a Christian woman that had a daughter. And the woman told him that when he died, she knew they knew he was dying, that when he died, that he would be buried, you know, through the, with the Jewish rites. She didn't. She buried him in a Christian graveyard. Mm. And he was very, very angry extremely angry about this. We were able to find that woman through research. We were able to find them. They they still lived in the state, but on the, on the complete other side of the state. He said to me, what you're looking for, you can find all of the records from, from my death. And he says, the band, and he said, my prayer book. And he told me, me, me where, it, where it was in a closet, and they went up and they got it with the, you know, the black band that they put on their arm. 
and he he that was right there. And we're talking what, about the leather band, uh, Lorraine. That's film. Big pardon. This is the uh, the black leather band that's wrapped around the arm of for prayer. That's called the tefillin. Yes, yes, that's the one. I couldn't think of the name. Yes. Right, right. That's it. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene in data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietney. We're talking to Lorraine Warren, ghost hunter, psychic researcher. And we have a fascinating story that is continuing. So now you can let go of it. Now <laughs> <laughs> I can let go of it. I have no idea, but go ahead, please. All right. What we did, we were able to contact a rabbi and a minion of men from the temple. They came over. They blessed the house. That was not enough. They had to exhume the body from the graveyard where it was. It was buried in a Jewish graveyard in New Haven, and nothing ever, ever happened Mm. again in that house. So um, it took a religious Yes, it always does. It took Jewish people, it took a a minion, and it took perhaps a rabbi to deal with this person Mm -hmm. who is Jewish, so, Lorraine, let me let me see if I understand this then. Let's say we had a Buddhist temple that had uh, some sort of an entity possessing it. Is the assumption then that we'd need a Buddhist priest to go in that's, and clean it? That's why we were working with these Buddhist priests in Japan, and the, the, the Buddhist that was head of that monastery came here to Connecticut and helped us with a case in Massachusetts. See, what you're saying to me, though, it, it solidifies this idea, and I'm not saying it proves it, but it's almost as if the manifestation, the energy itself, mm-hmm. was coming from the people involved, the living people, literally. Mm-hmm. And it's almost as if there's a projection that is created on the part of the religious belief of the living entities in the situation. That's that what's then, giving the energy. So I know that in the Islamic faith that they have this um, type of a demon called the jinn. And the Mm -hmm. jinn are basically supposed to be these negative entities that play off of uh, negative emotional feelings in humans. Mm -hmm. And that not only play off of them, but actually try to go out of their way to cause them. Yes, and they oppress them. They oppress them. Mm -hmm. So do we then assume that all of these negative entities, regardless of the religious context, are all the same thing manifesting in ways that take specific advantage of the specific religious beliefs of the people they're attacking? Let's look at it this way. Let's break it down in a simplistic way. We know there's only one God. There's just numerous religions. Well, see, this is where, Lorraine, and, and I... On the show, I've not talked a lot about my own spiritual and religious beliefs, and I actually tend to keep those out of the conversation. Mm -hmm. But I would suggest to you that when we bring the notion of God into the question, Mm -hmm. essentially what we're doing 
is in effect looking for this external, I don't want to call God a scapegoat, but you know, you look at the history of humanity and how God has been used to justify so many things, good and bad. Mm-hmm. I sometimes wonder, and, and right now this is a very big topic in certainly Western society, how much of God is a projection of human desire and if we can even truly understand the idea, the motivations of one force that would have created the whole universe, if we go with that, let's say we have one force, one entity, one spiritual mechanism called God, then don't we assume that then these negative energies are simply part of the program, that they're part of the plan that we perhaps can't even see? In other words... Are we the predator or are we the prey? It's like so much of the time humans are the predators on the planet. Sounds to me like here we're literally talking about this universal food chain where humans are another stepping stone and perhaps these entities, in essence, it doesn't seem like we can directly affect them, not most of us. And this, of course, ties back into this idea that things like these entities being affected more by people with religious power, like priests who invoke a god um, to fight these things, it makes me wonder what role God has in all of this, because we assume that if the universe is the creation of God, that these things are also part of God's creation. No, no, no. I mean, the inhuman inhuman spirits, the inhuman spirits are, without getting into all the biblical discussion on it, about the devil and, and like that, these are inhuman beings. They, they are not of God. They are definitely not of God. And that is why it is only through a religious right, because they are negative. Remember, all hauntings are not negative. Sure. Oh, sure. They're but, not but, all negative. No, no, absolutely. But isn't everything in the universe of God to yes, a person the, who believes in God? Well, yes. are these things not part of the physical universe? Yes, but you're, we're running, you know what we're running into? More and more and more. You'll say to a family, you know, that there's a problem in the home and, mm-hmm. and what might be required and, and like that. And they'll say, we don't believe in God. That's bad. That is, that is very, 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 very sad. It's, it's just amazing to us the amount of it we are seeing today. People are moving further and further away from organized religions. You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, 
conspiracies and secret societies, the complete dossier. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to ghost hunter and psychic researcher Lorraine Warren. And you're talking about moving away from organized religion. So you're suggesting that someone who is agnostic or an atheist, they will be attracting these evil entities? Is that what you're implying? You know when the soldier will say he never met an atheist on, on the battlefield? We never met an atheist in a truly haunted home. We're 50 years of research. Well, okay, but that brings up a lot of questions, Lorraine. I mean, if you... Yes, it does. That almost implies that to believe in God is to take some pretty big risks with dark forces. I mean, and again, on the Paracast, we we discuss all sides of the argument, literally. Mm -hmm. And we've, I think Gene and I have both been very reluctant to discuss our own personal religious backgrounds were both of Jewish heritage. So, you know, that's that, beautiful. That, well, it's, uh, it's certainly made for an interesting life for myself. I don't know about Jean, but I'm actually the child of a Holocaust survivor, and, and I know our listeners get tired of hearing that. But Oh, that's beautiful. Oh, my well, God. But it's wow. affected my worldview. I, I don't know if I'd refer to it as beautiful. It's, it's created in me a real sense of problem in the belief of... For example, a vengeful God or a, uh, Not a I mean, this is something, well, but, you know, we see these things tossed around so much and used, you know, this idea of a God that looks for retribution and vengeance. And my understanding of the devil was that Satan was one of God's most beloved angels that was then mm-hmm. cast down. I mean, so there again, and, and that's kind of what I get, was getting at before was the idea that maybe if there's a God and God's created the universe, that evil plays some role that we can't even see. And, and again, to sort of extend that out, you know, when we kill an animal for food in the eyes of that animal, are we not evil? We're taking its life for our own nourishment. I eat uh, almost very, very, very little meat here. Mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. am a real animal lover, and so is my husband when he were alive. And actually, anybody who knows me will tell you that I'm a, I'm a hardcore animal lover. But that being said, Lorraine, I'm also a human being, and I recognize that if I were in a situation, I think most humans, this would be true of, if I were in a situation where I were hungry enough, the sense of love of an animal or love of animals will sort of go out the window if it's down to my survival. Not me. Nope. I'd live on the vegetables and the fruit, but I would well, never kill an animal. Well, if and I submit to you that if you were in a situation where this is something I hope none of us ever have to deal with, where we were in a situation where there was nothing to eat but, let's say, fish in the water in front of you or a bird that lands on a tree, I think the instinct for survival, Lorraine, is very strong. And if it comes down to you dying or killing to eat, 
if that's the only alternative, I'm saying if we don't have a choice... I hope I'm never put in that position. Absolutely, neither do I. That's why I said I hope none of us ever have to deal with that. But no. I think we need to understand no, the I extremes. feel for you with your background. I feel for that. I think that is one of the most horrible things that ever ever happened in my lifetime. And my husband oh, yeah. felt the oh, same yeah. way. Um, you, know, you know, I want to tell you something. <laughs> I've never said that this publicly, but since you brought that up, mm -hmm. I am very uncomfortable in that beautiful country of Germany. I've actually never been back there. My mother was a Berliner that uh, she could never go back there either. It, was, it created no. a real problem for her. But I think for a lot of people, Lorraine, who survived the concentration camps, I think for a lot of them, their belief in God was killed along with their spirits in those camps. Um, they looked at this and said, how could a God possibly let this happen? But, you know, the, the problem here, of course, is that when we talk about the paranormal, it is so difficult to draw the line between, for example, science and religion or science and spirituality in trying to understand these things. And, and I have to tell you that I personally believe that with some of these negative entities that indeed what they are doing i i do believe these things exist and i haven't talked on the paracast about some of my interactions with these forces but unfortunately i have had interactions with these forces and i'm not willing to talk about them on the air now or maybe even ever don't give but recognition i've i've experienced these things and i know what they can do and it's not a, a topic I, I take lightly. And it's one of the reasons, by the way, I really wanted to have you on the show. Because I know, and we haven't, we haven't really talked much about Amityville. It's funny that Gene mentioned that I want to focus on that. <laughs> That's what we, we started. It, it, it we have even, to do that as another show. Uh, I, I think so. But <laughs> one of the things I think that, that our listeners, certainly, Lorraine, who expect us to be very scientific on this show, and, and I've gotten to some trouble on our forums telling people, look, if what you want is hard evidence in the paranormal world, you're going to be waiting a long time. This hard evidence is very elusive, very difficult to obtain, mm -hmm. and that all that ultimately any of us have are our personal experiences. And that's one of the reasons I want to have you on the show is that you've got, there's a lot of controversy around the work that you did with Ed. And I recognize that. I also recognize, though, that you have worked at this for a long time. And I respect that. I respect the fact that you've been able to deal with people who have attacked you about these things. I know that just in the last year, some of what I've put up with in terms of expressing my own beliefs has been very unpleasant. So I can only imagine what you've been through yeah. in the what? I mean, 50, some more than 50 years you've been looking into this topic. Yeah, Wait, well um, more than 50 years. Well, more than 50 years. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, I respect your tenacity, if nothing else, in, in keeping at this as long as you have. You, you know, but I, I want to warn you, if you do come back on the show, there are going to be some times, I think we are going to ask you some tough questions. I know that there there were a lot of people having problems with the Amityville case. People felt that perhaps things were misrepresented. Things and, were misrepresented. The people, yeah. the critics of the Amityville case never were ever in that home. So, basically... They're pulling apart mm -hmm. a book and a movie where certainly literary and dramatic license was taken. I have a direct question for you. Did did you or Ed profit in any way from the book? No. Or the movie? From the movie? Yeah. No. From the book? No. Okay. So there was no vested interest on your part in seeing that case so widely publicized, is what you're saying? Of course 
it's not. Well, I think this is an important thing to ask. I think a lot of people feel that they don't want to even look at the Amityville case because, and again, Lorraine, this is the problem in this field is that, and, and just in what we've talked about on the Paracast with UFO activity, mm-hmm. There are so many people looking to spread confusion about these topics for lots of different reasons. And there are also people that, quite frankly, prey on the ignorance of other people. This is unfortunately mm-hmm. the world in which we live, and, mm-hmm. and it's not a pretty thing. It, it's very true, though. You know, it, it, it makes any discussion of this a problem because of the fact that whenever you bring up these topics, people will either use religious belief to discredit the topics, use mm-hmm. religious belief to derail the discussion or basically say hey people have a financial interest in this and this is what motivates them but you were saying that you and ed were supporting yourself with art that your interest in this came really from ed's personal experiences that's how it, it really did art funded us and enabled us to travel and make our living as artists so that we never had to take money and of mm-hmm. course, now we've, we've been university speakers for 38 years, and I'm still continuing. I lost Ed in August, and I'm still continuing his legacy with our university work. And I can't lecture in universities without researching, and I'm doing both. Thank you so much for joining us on the Paracast. Thank you for having me, dear. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.